0: Welcome to the Calibre Podcast, brought to you by the Watches of Switzerland Group. In this episode, our CEO, Brian Duffy, speaks to Bill Prince about the landscape of the watch world in 2021. Key moments and milestones of the year, iconic products released in 2021, and upcoming news for the Watches of Switzerland Group in the 12 months ahead.
1: Hello everybody and uh, welcome to the Watchers Switzerland uh, podcast. I haven't done a podcast for a while um, so I'm really delighted to be doing this one with uh, one of my favourite people in the world of watches, uh, uh, Mr Bill Prince. He's a a true expert in in watches, wonderful journalist uh, in watches and uh, uh, and great company and uh, really nice to, albeit remotely, really nice to see you Bill.
0: Well, thank you, Brian. It's very nice to see you over Zoom. And I'm just very grateful we had that opportunity uh, last month to see each other in person in Geneva at a real live, living, breathing watch event. And uh, it felt very special after what's been a tricky old year in terms of the industry. And I suppose also those in love with the industry who who really regard the time that we spend around the watches is absolutely crucial to their understanding, enjoyment and the ability to learn as we go go through the year, so it was really wonderful to be there at the GPHG, which I've been taught now, um, Brian, not to refer to as the Oscars of the watch industry, because apparently that's a cliche. But as cliches go, I think it's a very accurate one, and obviously it stands for the Grand Prix Horloger de Genève. And we were very uh, fortunate. I was personally honoured to be selected as a juror this year, as were your, as as were you, Brian. And um, I don't know what you felt about it, but I thought it was an extremely impressive evening.
1: I, I mean, I thought the whole thing was was wonderful. I was about to refer to it as the Oscars of watches, by the way. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you tipped me off on that. But in every sense, it feels like it, doesn't it? The uh, the actual the whole judging that we go through, and then that wonderful event at the at, on the Thursday evening at the Teatro de Geneve, or Teatro de uh, at Le Mans. Um, I, I thought it was truly wonderful, especially the the day that we spent together uh, doing the judging. The Monday of the week, I think it was uh, November
0: the fourth. It was, yes, and on a yeah, on a serious note, I think I think that term Oscar does stand scrutiny because it's an incredibly genuine and incredibly um, what's the word we'd use? Uh, it's a it's a heartfelt process that we are put through. I mean, I think there is a need for this. And as you say, we were, we were given the opportunity to review all of the shortlisted products on the Monday, in, without going into too much detail, because I understand we're not supposed to share too much information around the judging, except to say that from my perspective, it really was a very uh, honest, transparent, and credible system. I mean, I think everyone could understand that there was a really cogent atmosphere of understanding and love of watchmaking, which, which led the jurors to make their decisions.
1: Yeah, uh, and you know what I thought uh, the the I thought that Monday was wonderful when we did the judging and and you had this com- completely different uh, positions of control of the process and and of the discretion and everything and then with, with you see the notary present all all done by the foundation and uh, then we had our, our chairman we had uh, we had Nick Foltz sharing it for the first time and he's he's just so irreverent and uh, at the same time entertaining and at the same time efficient he actually pushed us all through and brought a bit of levity uh, to it all, but um, uh, very different approaches between Nick and the Swiss uh, overall.
0: (laughs) You're not wrong, Brian. But Brian, you'll know more about this than any man alive. I mean, it it takes skill to sit on a committee. It takes skill to be able to run a meeting. And in fairness, given the sort of broad church that had been assembled in terms of the jurors, I count myself one of them—from journalists to yourself—in the, in the uh, I would consider to be the sharp end of the business in in, in conveying the the beauty and the brilliance of these timepieces to the to the to, to, to the audience that that uh, requests them. Um, it was a broad church, and yet. Nick, in his as you say, in his estimable way, was able to sort of bring this to a very sharp focus very quickly. So what could have easily taken days in any, anyone else's hands managed to be done in a matter of nine hours. Which I apparently I have don't have this uh, officially, but I hear is a record for for the um, judging, which means that there was real sort of pertinence to the conversations that were being had.
1: I learned so much throughout the day to be sitting there with with young watchmakers with with you know older watchmakers that have been through uh, so much and just understood the products so well technically collectors journalists um, you know other retailers uh, along with me I, I thought it was a, just a wonderful company to be in and, uh, you know, I was awestruck by the uh, just the, the passion and the, the knowledge that was in the room, really a privilege to be
0: there. And much like the events that we join when we go to Watches and Wonders, and hopefully we will be going in 2022, um, I think the real takeaway for me is quite how international the tribe of watch lovers is and how much you learn from sitting beside representatives of the watch industry and in whatever guise they take, from Asia, from America, from Europe, and also from the cradle of Swiss watchmaking, which brings extraordinary technicity and understanding of what really makes these watches, excuse the pun, tick. It's something I've really missed this year. I had to say, Brian, just that ability to rub shoulders with a global audience for watchmaking who give you their own perspectives and give you a little bit of local information about what goes down well where they are. And, and often it's very different to what we take away from knowing our local markets.
1: Yeah, and as you said uh, earlier, there the, the the passion and the pride that was expressed by everybody, the winners' the speeches that they all gave in the evening. That really is it's a very emotional uh, moment uh, overall for everybody that was involved, and uh, again, all great to witness at a, at a personal and at a and at a business level. Um, so, I mean, let's let's talk about a couple of the the, the winners uh, that were there because one other great thing about it this year, and I think. Uh, very commendable for the Swiss as it was very, very international in its recognition and, and appeal and, uh, and involvement. And, you know, one of the winners I was delighted to see was the Grand Seiko who make wonderful watches as as we know. And I don't think, I think they've won it before, but best part of 10 years ago. Uh, but I thought they were a
0: very worthy very well, they off. Well, that was definitely in my wheelhouse because that was the uh, the Grand Seiko was the winner of the uh, the men's category. Now, as you can imagine, some of the category titles alone um, command a long list that run into the many, many dozens. So it's a real achievement to fulfil the challenge of winning in a category as wide as what would you would require as being a men's watch. But I have to say, the Grand Seiko piece was stunning. I think I think it was a it was obviously a worthy winner, but it was also a winner that was extremely popular. And I think that's because Grand Seiko has done so much in recent years to really bring what is the heart and soul of its watchmaking to a global audience. And we will come on, I think, Brian, to talk about sort of the extraordinary um, sort of generosity and vivid uh, uh, energy that is displayed in dial making at the moment. But the silver birch dial that was on the the Grand Seiko piece that one men's watch is is absolutely stunning. And it was just one element of an incredibly well-considered watch. Um, i don't know what you think, I think I think some of the categories were almost in competition with each other because several of the watches could have won in several categories, and I think it was almost it was almost noticeable that as much as whether or not i won 't ask you on the record, Brian, whether you voted for that particular piece, but whether or not you found yourself voting for the winning watch, often you were voting for different elements of the same watch, so you were really celebrating around the table perhaps somebody would be celebrating the extraordinary high beat movement other people would be focused almost entirely on the aesthetics um i have to say the aesthetics of that watch are stunning
1: yeah they are and i think that's the thing with the grand Seiko. they take each of these boxes equally their uh their movements are so technical and unique the high beat is such a wonderfully accurate movement and then as you see the dial and then i think we also take a bit of Magic correctly from the inspiration of these dials, that very you know Oriental Japanese view of nature, uh, that's often represented in the, in the dials and the wonderful polishing. So yeah, a, a, a great worthy winner uh, overall. As was uh, one that I had the pleasure of uh, uh, presenting the uh, LMX, the, the latest legacy machine from uh, MB&F. Mm.
0: Yeah Max Boucher is a, is a is a uh, is an extraordinary again another energetic figure in the world of contemporary watchmaking and he had a very successful uh, grand prix this year i think he picked up two awards in in total and i had to say that the the sort of how would you describe it there is almost two stories being told in present day watchmaking one Continues to allude to the history of of watch wristwatches in their design, in their formulation, and often in their function. And then Max Buser brings this brilliant sort of novelty. And I use the word novelty in, I suppose, the Swiss watchmaking meaning of the word, meaning something that's outstanding, something that's beyond the norm. And as you say, it's the the the, the legacy piece was a it was another statement piece. I mean, but there were a few watches in in that regard. I think. It was a worthy winner. And as you said earlier, Brian, I think that there was such breadth of watchmaking expertise on offer in terms of the wins that um, that's what brought the, I think what people referred to after the event and not to blow our own trumpet as having been there was that uh, what felt like a breath of fresh air in 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 an industry that can and will go quiet around certain types of uh, watchmaking and certain typologies of design. But on this occasion, everything was welcome and there were some very worthy winners.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh I mean Max is I think such a recognised uh character and inspiration and innovator and uh, and we are delighted at Watch Your Switzerland we're gonna be opening uh with uh, with MB and F uh, next spring in uh in Regent Street. So we'll be delighted to uh, present the wonders that he does to the uh, to London and the in the UK market. I was also delighted to see Zenit. Zenit win the um uh, chronograph. And they get such a wonderful
0: history and association with chronograph, of course. I think I can say with respect, I think it was one of the most popular awards on the night. And I think that's for any number of reasons. I think one of them is the stark, stark realisation that despite producing the El Primero, Uh, integrated automatic chronograph movement back in 1969, which really changed the face of the industry. And as we know, went on to run inside the Rolex Daytona for many years. Um, Zenith itself had never picked up a prize in this category at at the Grand Prix. Despite being a highly decorated manufacturer in its own right, it had not been celebrated for the single most important chronograph movement that was ever produced, possibly. And I think its execution in the Chronomaster Sport... Um, which is an entirely new model compared to the how we've been used to seeing the El Primero in the Chronomaster range, um, really underlines quite the power of the of of the piece. Uh, it's it was I understand planned to be released last year. I mean the work had obviously been going on for several years prior to that, but the big launch had been planned for twenty twenty. Obviously, it was decided quite rightly that something of that was going to be so important to a brand like Zenith shouldn't slip out during the dark days of a of a lockdown. So it was held and it was released early this year. And I think from the very beginning, um, those that didn't understand made some, I thought, some rather callous and unkind comments regarding its appearance. Those that understood where this watch came from and where that movement has been understood implicitly its importance. And I'm pleased to say, I mean, I think the award was very well uh, uh, received, but apparently the watch and you'll be, able to, you'll be able to tell me Brian the watch itself has been extremely well received and it's now probably becoming one of Zenith's sort of most claimed watches uh, in years and they find themselves in the happy position of having to sort of feed demand
1: it, It's exactly correct uh, Bill and, uh, and I like you I'm sure are delighted for Julian Tornar and the job that he does and the personal you know, investment and passion and he was one that I, I think gave a very and passionate the uh, uh, speech you could really sense the pride from him at the at the success of winning the award, but probably even more importantly, the success commercially that he's enjoying. We certainly can't get enough of uh, of the product. Um, uh, it's a it's a common theme this year, as as we'll talk. Uh, but Zenith is, is one of the ones, and I'm regularly calling Julian directly and saying, you know, come on, Julian, you uh, we've we've been with you a long time. We we need more. So um. Yeah, a, a good quality problem for him and up uh, him and us to have overall and uh, delighted for him. But I mean the L V group overall, the Louis Vuitton group had a had a pretty successful evening, and then uh in,
0: including with the Louis Vuitton uh brand winning the uh, divers watch. Exactly, yeah. I think that I, I think and there was the third piece, which was the Tambour the CAP DM high complication piece, which um was extraordinary. Um I think I think it was interesting, on a wider note, actually, it was interesting that a group such as uh, LVMH, which, as we know, owns Zenith and Tag Hoyer, which doesn't participate in the um, GPHG, uh, however, Louis Vuitton does, and of course, Bulgari, are long-term and recent, highly decorated uh, participants of the the competition. Um, It was noticeable quite how widespread the awards were travelling this year. And I think, again, this reflects on a sort of a new... I wouldn't say emerging, but a refreshing new element to the watch industry, which is seeking out fine and high watchmaking wherever it lives. And I think as we saw with the overall uh, prize winner, the, the Finissimo uh, Perpetual Calendar, um, yet again another extraordinary ultra-thin uh, product from Bulgari, which has been holding its own against quite a, quite a dominant market in high complications, not necessarily all ultra-thin, I'll give you that. Um it's been it's been a very successful few years for um the LVMH group. But yes, within that, I think we saw slightly later on um the same week, we saw the only watch sale take place in Geneva, and we saw some very encouraging signs around the valuations placed on on several watches there. Um the for instance the, the zenith piece that was put up for auction for charity. Um, raised the highest price ever made for a Zenith at auction or indeed any other marketplace. So it was clearing nearly 500,000 Swiss francs at the time, which is, which is an extraordinary achievement, um, not simply for a brand such as Zenith, but it just shows quite how much interest there currently is in watches. And, you know, we, we we will have to, I guess, anticipate where this end of the market will go next because it seems to be moving without any kind of ceiling in place. But where we live, Brian, which is where those figures still sadly lie somewhere beyond the um, day-to-day expenditure of of, of the watch uh, fan means that the quality and the brand value that's being built and, and, and maintained and in some cases multiplied by this fascination with pieces clearing prices such as that means that i think as you say it's a ship the ship's rising on a tide at the moment i think there's going to be extraordinary interest in brands with zenith, like zenith now and also in a personal note i guess zenith is now has has a nice Zenith has a has a win behind it, has a very successful watch behind it, which will probably give it the push now to really go with um, many more new models in the next few years, which will have similar success, I imagine.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it's absolutely true. And I think we've always all felt of it, Zenith. Such a great brand, good product. And uh, it just needed this major breakthrough somewhere. And I think finally with the, the master Sport, it, it's got it. And it's got it at a time when the market is... Um, is really positive as as you see, so as you say, so uh, I'm sure they're gonna do very well uh, and then just other great products that were introduced during the year, just one or two highlights of the big brands as we go through so from Rolex, I mean it wasn't the biggest year for new product from Rolex, which I think we were all very relieved by on the on the retail side of things. We haven't had anything like enough of last year's or the year before or the year before. New products, so we're all quite relieved that there was some interesting uh, newness there. But it it wasn't a full range of products that uh, we were only going to be disappointed in terms
0: of supply with. Some interesting stuff. And and what did you think about the the redo of the Explorer Explorer Two? Well, you say it wasn't a big year for Rolex, in that in a poetic sense, it really wasn't, was it? Because the uh, I I think this for me, we'll come on to the the Explorer Two. But I think the for me, the real standout piece was the thirty-six millimeter by Colour Explorer, which came to market, which I think engendered a new conversation now, not simply about what constitutes a man's watch or a woman's watch, but fundamentally about what sizing full stop. And I know, Brian, you you keep very, very close tabs on this. And I know you spend a lot of time analysing trends uh, in the marketplace around many many aspects of watch design but i think sizing is becoming very interesting at the moment and i think that 36 millimeter has has walked straight into what i see as being a, a strong trend now which is not ne- not necessarily negating that the era of larger watches obviously larger watches still um uh, still exist in, in in huge numbers what what it does is it kind of al- alludes to a sense of, I don't know, slightly dressier, slightly more sleek, something slightly more understated for which a man can say, yes, I want to wear this 36mm. As we know, 30, 40 years ago, 36mm was considered normal, if not large. I mean, men often wore 33, 34mm. But for the last 20 years, it's never been considered a man's watch at 36mm. And yet we saw last year with those beautiful candy-coloured um, perpetual, uh, oyster perpetuals, in 36 mm and now the explorer in 36 mm um, it's it's definitely here to stay and it's definitely it's definitely combining with some other brands i'm thinking now of that extraordinary Odomar Piguet 34 mm royal oak in in black ceramic with the rose gold uh um screws absolutely stunning and and again if you follow the feeds on people's social media there's no distinction as to who might wear that watch it's just a beautiful watch and it's thirty four now thirty four millimeter is on the small side for a man but many men have shown great interest in that watch as ha- as have women but coming back to the explorer no it was a it was a it was a pretty pretty um uh interesting lineup from the perspective of bringing gold into the case materials of a of a tool watch such as the explorer that created some uh, dust on, on the social media platforms as you can imagine and then we come to the obviously the 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 explorer 2 which again in everything rolex does has been refined once more i mean it's 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 a piece that obviously has has stood the test of time it's stood a great deal of other tests as well um it's probably i guess with the outside of the gmt it's probably one of the most well-traveled watches ever produced, given its sort of ability to operate in all climates, all conditions, underground, in the pitch dark of an Arctic or Antarctic winter. It's a watch that's really earned its spurs. It's celebrating an anniversary, but the fact that it's brought all of these uh, elements together and yet retained all of that sort of working heft and strength and reliability is 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 really, really impressive, actually. It's interesting because it's a, it's a very... I think it's a very clean expression of what we would consider to be a classic Rolex professional watch, but at the same time, there was so much else to enjoy in Rolex. And we talked a little bit about dials earlier, but I think one of the wonderful um, elements of this year's collection has been this sort of uh, audacity. Almost, it's this 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 approach to creating dials that really do. Uh, express themselves. I'm I'm thinking of the Daytona's with the uh with the meteorite dials. We've seen meteorite dials before, but to bring a meteorite dial into the Daytona seems to me a uh, almost avant garde act coming from where the Daytona came from. And then you, you were very you were very fond of the uh of the more organic, uh, <laughs> earthbound creations that have found themselves onto dial with the palm.
1: Yeah, I thought it was lovely uh, when I saw it. And again, quite quite audacious and quite, but, but we get used to that kind of audacity from uh, from Rolex. Um, did, did, and I think it's like everything you see from Rolex, You just your mind quickly goes down to just start agreeing with it because you know how much sort of thought it is, has gone into it. But I, I did love that. a uh, uh, Green, I, think, I know we're going to talk about colour and we'll talk about green, but certainly green is hugely popular and really, really works with a, uh, with a steel watch, I think uh, very very well, um, and I can tell you again, it's we of course can't get enough of it, and of course as soon as it was publicised, we had people calling, we would waiting lists. The same with the fluted dial uh, as well, and that had all come in the back of the joyful colours that had all come out on the on the thirty six millimetre. So I, I think Rolex has really helped, it really helped. In fact, led the whole legitimising
0: of you know adventurous colour uh, in watches, which is great fun. Yeah. And with respect to the extraordinary demand for Rolexes, which which has probably created as many headaches for you as it has for those chasing them down, is that this is seeding out into the wider watch market. So, for instance, Oris launched their 65 divers in what they call their cotton candy collection. Very vibrant, very cheerful, very very lively uh, dial colours set into bronze cases. Practical. Oris, so extraordinary value for money, practical watches, bang about watches, but with this sort of central uh, attractiveness, which is this this step out of a traditional color uh, hue to give us these wonderful colors. So, I I think I think color and and to a certain extent dial design, dial uh, fabrication, dial finishing, it, it is is becoming an important sort of uh, recruiter. I think it's a recruiting sergeant for those who perhaps. Are, if not new to the watch uh, industry, they are they are wondering where to go next or they're wondering why a watch brings so much enjoyment. And I think colour alone can really deliver enjoyment for somebody who possibly hasn't really thought about wearing a watch on a daily basis. Because as we know, there has been this drift away from watches towards timekeeping using other technological devices. But so the watch industry has responded to this by making things that are, that are fun, engaging, and enjoyable to wear, which is what people really enjoy, really like to do.
1: No, for sure. You know, at our our wonderful store in Soho, when when you go now, we have um, collections of products that are all just screaming colour. So we have Rolex there with the joyful colours. Uh, we do have Oris uh, right in front, with the, you, you see all of the, the great fun that they're having with colour. I, I know that at, at the GPHG, we all loved the pink and the and the bronze uh overall is it's certainly one of uh, one of our favourites. Next to that we get Doxer, who again but a bit ahead of uh ahead of the curve on it, but just doing really inventive colours. You come round the corner, you meet Brightling and the, with the Endurance Pro and you know, so I, I get it it's brought a happiness and, and an interest and, and clearly another reason to buy uh, overall is uh um experimentation not experimentation, the imagination that's been put into uh a, a, a coloured dials and straps. And I, I do think the change in straps as well helps. I mean the, the, clearly there's been a huge increase in rubber uh, straps and and the whole diver category, so that obviously I think uh, gives a material that works very well with the with these colours.
0: It's probably an overlooked part of the business how how much time the brands have spent perfecting, and they need to be perfected for obvious reasons. No one wants to see their watch crashing to the ground. But the 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 technicity used in the construction of um, of a quick change strap is not to be underestimated. And yet it seems to be something that that all brands, obviously, Omega, Gay, have brought theirs into the new Royal Oak um, offshore collection this year, which is again another stunning collection. Um, incredible use of colourways as well um there's there's definitely this this understanding that customization doesn't necessarily lie at the heart of every watch purchaser's uh, pyramid of need but it is something that offers just that extra gear change that allows people to swap out how they dress their watch and obviously allows them to make those color coordinations that you described between strap and dial so it's 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 definitely for it's definitely furnishing the, the the consumer with much more choice a wider choice and in the case of tudor for instance who will supply several straps or at least two straps with each piece there's a real understanding that the the, the brands want the consumer to enjoy the piece as much as possible.
1: Yeah, and and I think the strap is a, a relatively inexpensive way of creating choice and interest and now interchangeable straps, I think, are, are great developments overall and hugely increases just the wearing occasions for the, for your watch and, and uh, situations that you can enjoy it. Um, Just moving to, to Patek, and I, I think they've done an amazing job of new product introduction during this whole period and, and I think it's been so much more exciting and uh, commercially efficient as well for them to be introducing products. Uh, you you look forward to the morning, looking at your email to see is is there another Patek being announced? Because they're announcing it, it's available, they're delivering it, and um, and it's always something you don't don't expect. I think in the year we've had around 24 uh, new, so it's so very very exciting. But just two things I wanted to uh, get your. Your comments
0: on is the, the first being the new Calatrava. Yeah. The Clou de Paris. I think it, it almost got lost in all of the all of the talk around um several standout pieces. I mean, I will come on to it, but the the new perpetual calendar, inline perpetual calendar reference 5236, astonishing piece of work. But coming back to the Clue de Paris Calatrava, obviously the Calatrava is is an, is is almost is is the is the foundation of the modern of the modern wristwatch in terms of how people perceive patek Philippe and it's an ageless elegant dress watch that always finds its audience is never out of time um, and retains all of its grace and quality even at moments when people are pursuing outsized outre watches and uh, and and several other Pieces within the Patek family, but what's special about the new Calatrava is that not only does it retain this this red thread all the way back to the '30s and and, and the and the first Calatravas, but it also contains this extraordinary new movement, double barrels, heightened um, heightened e- um, energy reserves, greater accuracy. It's it's a phenomenal piece of watchmaking that sits within. Uh, well, I suppose you might call it neoclassical, but either way, a very classical perspective. It's um, it's a stunning watch, and I think I think as someone who who doesn't uh, reflect on watch prices based on what they might be one day, it kind of sets the Calatrava once again on a on a charge where perhaps it has been languishing somewhat beside certain stainless steel pieces, um, also time only pieces manufactured by Patek Philippe, but it almost sets it back into that sort of world where it's time to pay attention to the calatrava again i mean i think it's, it was a stunning watch as i say as, as was the perpetual calendar but it was hard to cut through and for you and your team brian to cut through the thicket of uh, anticipatory comments des- demands requests for the nautilus means that not that these pieces might get lost but they almost have to wait their turn before they get uh, recognized and I think we should speak a little bit about the Nautilus only because its its sort of reputation and therefore its value went shooting up again this year when it was announced that the uh, the iconic fifty seven eleven was being discontinued. Um, I think that mo- I think that moment dropped. Um, I think you found out first, Brian. Because I think it was the authorized dealers who is who were alerted to the end of line. Of the fifty-seven eleven that quickly moved out of a moved out of a document and into the <laughs> into the viral uh, Twitter sphere, and everyone went absolutely doolally, to use a technical word, didn't they?
1: <laughs> they did. I mean, it always was under such uh, huge demand, anyhow. But then, for the world to learn that uh, that there might be no more, and the, and as far as we know, there will be no more, then the whole thing just went stratospheric. Uh, alongside the introduction, again we're going to talk green of the of the green fifty seven eleven that people just went apoplectic about when they when they saw it.
0: I suppose it was staged, and as you say, I say staged in the, in the sense that I think I think well, it was interesting that we saw. The white gold, blue, lovely graded blue Aquanaut, and so we were in one sense one watch was leaving the stage and another watch was coming onto the stage. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, we should stick with the Nautilus. And as you say, I think the announcement um, that it was being discontinued, and then the announcement that there would be the extraordinary green dial model as 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 almost an end of line, sayonara, um, sent everyone into a into a cre- into a complete. Uh, meltdown. As we saw on the secondary market, that watch was selling for half a million uh, US within months. And I think that really did sort of embolden people to think that there was nowhere this watch couldn't go. But what we didn't know at the time, although Thierry Stern, the CEO um, of Patek Philippe, did mention early on during the year that there was going to be a final act for this Nautilus. I think people missed that because people were talking incessantly as if the green dial was the last. And then we saw at the very end of this year, not the last launch from Patek Philippe, as it turns out, but at the very end of this year, we saw the 170th anniversary collection co-dialed, i.e. designed for and sold by exclusively Tiffany, um, which I think everyone, again, was almost shattered by the by the audacity of the of the piece, but also by the fact that even at one hundred and seventy pieces, they lay well beyond the realm of most most watch connoisseurs to ever achieve ownership. And it it just stands to it stands to the success and strength of the brand, and also the success and strength of Gerald Genta's design that the Nautilus has continued to. Gather what in in essence, is it was a stainless steel time only model into becoming this great leap motif for what where watch collecting particularly now stands, but we shouldn 't of course forget that at the same time shortly after the Nautilus was announced as being discontinued, so too was the current iteration of the of Gerald Genter's original uh, luxury sports watch the uh, the Royal Oak, which uh, in its current and last iteration is the 15202 ST in steel. When I say last, I think we can expect expect big things next year because we land on the 50th anniversary of the Royal Oak's launch in 2022. So at the same time as the Nautilus is stepping away in the 5711, the the Royal Oak 15202 which contains the equally legendary caliber 2121 is also stepping off the stage and it sets up a very interesting moment in, for both brands to announce what and how they plan to continue this story, because continue this story they well and truly will do, because there is so much demand for what for a lot of people now is the is is the classical interpretation of a of a wristwatch, which is a a, a steel watch that's capable of going anywhere that the wearer wishes to go with it, but still retains all of the credentials of an elegant dressy watch and contains a fine movement. So it's 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 probably been a very very big year for what at the time back in the seventies was possibly seen as an experiment in in turning a a tool watch into a luxury timepiece. So it's it's been a fascinating year from that perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got a lot to be grateful to uh, Gerald Genta for it. I mean, as as we've been talking through here, even in Bulgari, Bulgari, I don't know if you mentioned it. Uh, the the Bulgari design was Gerald Genta, and, and of course uh, the Nautilus and the, and his first and probably most, oof, I, even as I say that I correct myself, but his uh, his first you know in, introduction of of its kind being the
0: being the Royal Oak in seventy two such an influential uh, designer. Yeah, I, th- I think I think I think with between the Nautilus and the Royal Oak both having very important years, and in case of the Royal Oak, certainly next year will become another even more important year. I think the story of Gerald Genta, I mean, it's been told often, it's been told well. Um, It is migrating now out of the concern of watch collectors and watch enthusiasts to the man himself who who left us um, just over 10 years ago. Um, It's becoming a sort of less than a local legend within watchmaking, but becoming a now a sort of a recognised design genius across all disciplines. And he was incredibly, incredibly um, uh, prolific. I mean, obviously within the watch industry, people tend to focus on those models that he was uh, most closely involved in, but his hand was in lots of watches I and mean, he'd worked with Rolex in the past. He worked with Omega. He worked with Hamilton very early on. Um, there is... Any number of watches that you can IWC with the Ingenieur, Vacheron Constantin, which we may come on to actually, um, in in terms of developing the Vacheron Constantin steel models. There's, there's an extraordinary sort of breadth of, of engagement from Gerald Genta in watchmaking and in the design of watches. And his legacy lives on. And as you mentioned, Bulgari, who have an extraordinary line with Finissimo, which is just, again, I think it's almost a contemporary, well, Again, it's a contemporary classic now. I mean, I think people can recognise the finissimo from 15 feet in the same way they can recognise a a Royal Oak or a Nautilus. Um, But within the Bulgari design portfolio, there's the Octo and the Roma Roma. And Joel Gentle worked very closely with the Bulgari family in the 70s, producing these pieces. And the legacy lives on in those watches. And at the same time, he was released from that industry to work on his own watches, out of which he had the novelties that uh, introduced... Disney characters to the dials of watches, which at the time caused certain amounts of uh, raised eyebrows, but now again have become legends in their own time. And Bulgari this year have reintroduced, under its own dial name, the Joel Genta Mickey Mouse watch. And I think it's fascinating that 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 this sense of fun and, and uh, shall we say, uh, certainly a, a more relaxed approach to watchmaking is returning at this moment. And I think it puts this i think it puts Gerald Genter's story in good stead for next year because I think there's a lot more to come in terms of explaining quite what he did and there are a lot of brands who owe him a very great deal, and there's still a lot of brands whose work can who his work can be seen within which are probably more accessible than a nautilus right now, so it will be a very big year for Gerald Genter i think a very big year for his designs and i think those brands that have benefited from his from his input over the years will obviously be thinking about how that might be um orchestrated as well
1: yeah, uh, yeah no i think a lot to look forward to there um just moving on one brand that's relatively recent certainly it's a reintroduction to the uk relatively recent but has had a phenomenal year uh has been tudor and uh some some amazing new products a wonderful brand that it's sold right so obviously uh is part of Rolex and and has the benefit of that wonderful uh, group and resources behind it but is a brand in its own right but some really fantastic new products coming out the silver, the gold uh, the black with the ceramic (coughs) and uh, the brand is really a really hit form
0: uh, overall I have to say I I imagine Tudor must be giving certain brands cold nights of the soul I mean their combination (laughs) of of value and quality and engagement and which um, in experimentation in terms of the uh, the sterling silver piece they released this year It's just off the scale at the moment for me i th- i think the black base ceramic coming in at the price that it came in at and offering for the first time in a tudor it's something that omega has offered for several years which is a which is a testing regimen known as metas which is uh, is not dissimilar to a uh, a, a cosk certification, which covers chronometry, robustness, reliability, and other elements. But is considered to be uh, of a rather more um, distinctive air because it it requires the, the, the organization itself, Metas, to set up shop in your own workshops, where it has a key to a room, which has all the testing materials required to test your own watches and to which no one can enter apart from a Metas employee. I mean, it's an incredibly involved and involving process to do it. And I think with Omega offering its watches with Meta certification and now Tudor offering its own watches with Meta certification and with respect there being a price differential in that itself means that I think the value proposition for Tudor just gets just grows and grows and grows. And as you say, Brian, the models themselves look stunning. I mean, we had the Tudor Black Bay 58 in bronze. And uh, we've had the ceramic piece and the sterling piece. And now at the end of the year they dropped the uh, the Pelagos, which is their dive watch, which I still think is a Hundinger. I mean, I I think that blue-dard Pelagos watch, it was there at launch in 2014 when they renewed the brand's equity in the in the northern hemisphere. But it, it's it, it was taking second place almost to the Black Bay story and the and the 58 story. And now it's right back in the frame. And again, it represents extraordinary value. And interestingly, although it's it's dedicated to a French dive team, but rather than limiting the numbers, they're going to limit production by the year in which the watch is produced. So at the end of each year, when that year has concluded, however monsters are made, are sold, and then the case back will indicate that you're moving into another year. So that's another interesting, and Tudor are very imaginative in this respect. Not only are they offering great after-sales service and great value for money, and they're being generous in terms of strap replacements and also uh, 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 additional straps with each purchase, but they're also coming up with clever, techniques to make you really want to kind of con- pursue and consume their story if you see what i mean so a watch that you know you won't have to chase down one of a hundred um but know that you need to buy this year's model because it won't be available next year is a wonderful a wonderful thing
1: they yeah, very clever um but I, as you rightly say as you went through the value for money what you're getting for uh you know, the amount of watch you're getting. In the case of the Chronograph, for example, you know, the 3,900, um, really, really tremendous quality of, of product from a very cool brand. So not surprising that it's that it's doing so well. And, and once again, one that we, you know, can't get enough of. Uh, it was a great year for uh, for Omega. Uh, and the, the year before, the 2020, they had such bad luck, if you like, the Olympics getting cancelled or or delayed, at least the um uh, the Bond movie getting delayed. But then of course, all that then came on board in 2021. And, and just to mention, the, the most successful Bond
0: watch ever, uh, actually. Um, and uh, what did you think of it? I thought it, well, it seems a lifetime ago, I was lucky enough to be in New York when the piece was launched, when they believed the film would be appearing. Uh, so we met in New York in December, 2019, as I recall, and and Daniel was there and and, and for once, when somebody speaks about a a genuine collaboration around the design of a piece, you sense that Daniel Craig had taken a hands-on approach to this watch because it had all of that lovely neo-vintage feel. Of a Seamaster, and then it had the additional qualities of the Milanese strap, and it was it was a it was a lovely piece. And then, of course, we then had this extraordinary wait—not particularly in terms of the piece itself, but just waiting to see how it would occupy the screen when the film finally arrived. Well, lo and behold, it did arrive. It didn't disappoint. And I think the whole Seamaster three hundred story that Omega have told this year has been incredible. It's been it's that it's been a trying time. Obviously, the other big pillar of Omega's communication story is the Olympics. And that was delayed by one year. Happily, they now go into um, the Winter Olympics early next year, but they've had, it had been a drought for Omega in terms of telling the stories around which these watches have been produced. So, but you can't, and then, and and at the same time, they kept doing what they do best and they evolved and elevated the DeVille collection once again, and it's been, it's been just another sort of knockout year for Omega, I think. And I look forward to next year as well, because now, in one sense, they've got perhaps certain elements of that story behind them, and it will be interesting to see what they develop from here on in.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I like you rightly say that they've got great momentum. They've got such great pillars with Speedmaster and and Seamaster and the Moonwatch and... Uh, and, and uh olympics and uh, and so on and uh but you know it's it's such a great time for watches overall because it could be equally complementary of so many brands at the moment There's such vitality behind product development especially but, uh, and uh, and marketing and support so and one of them, of course being cartier who who have been on a great role for the last couple of years and, and had a super year. And then one of the products we can't keep in stock again is the Santos skeleton. That's
0: become so popular. Right, wow, how interesting. That's so interesting. I think when Cartier, when Cartier a few years ago um, determined to to probably take a, a more uh, what should we say a more considered look at its. I mean, it's Cartier is a brand that 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 is focused and is has been developed around these extraordinary shapes. Of their watches, and each shape has its own lineage, its own legacy, obviously, its own fan base as well. And to have a collection of watches where each watch has a distinctive shape that gathers and and gives its own sense of self is really remarkable. And and uh, Sylvignon, the CEO, the way he is sort of expertly made. A journey through these pieces over the last four or five years, I think, has been it's been astounding. And as you say, when the Santos, I think it was about four years ago now, when the Santos was relaunched in in several case sizes, I mean, it was clear that that as it's nineteen oh four. I mean, it's one of the very earliest wristwatches ever produced, and yet it was completely and utterly correct for the for the market into which it was reappearing in the in the early twenty first century. And I think what was really interesting this year is the Mousse de Cartier, which was launched in the seventies as almost a, it was a diffusion. They would never have used the term at the time, Brian, would they? But I mean, it was a diffusion line for, um, for the Cartier tank. It was a way of getting more watches into the marketplace. They were quartz driven. And at the same time, it built up this sort of steady uh, fan base. I understand at the time in the 70s, although it was slightly smaller um, and it had coloured dials, uh, came on a variety of uh, straps, it was very much a unisex watch which was very key to the 70s moment as well so it was never dis- it was never considered to be a ladies line or a men's line it was the- it was the de cartier so when it reappears in 2021 again as a, is a, a very value added model for in the cartier line it, it it hits the market just when we are talking about this nature of gender fluidity and actually what does a watch is res- who who gets to wear a watch? I suppose who who decides whether it's suitable for a man or a woman? And the Mooster Cartier, fifty years after, forty five years after it launched, suddenly comes back and is back bang right in the right place at the right time. And I know many people who are very anxious to get hold of it. And then at the same time, the the, the credible uh the cloche was reissued this year. Um last year the centree was reissued. So this concept of shapes and the and the way they are just ineffably Cartier is perfect. I think it's one of the finest performing watch brands in in going at the moment because it is so focused on playing to its strengths at the moment, which is obviously its it's um irreducible and indelible design shapes.
1: Yeah, no I think that's right and I totally agree with you that Cyril Vigneron has has uh, really focused on absolutely perfect uh, relaunches of these uh, I- iconic ranges like like Santos, uh, like the Pasha that we've just seen, like the Must um, that has we again can't get enough of. I've got a common theme throughout all of our discussion here. Just can't get can't can't get enough of and the uh, and uh, the 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 Must has been hugely successful. We've also seen a trend towards men buying the Cartier in the UK, which is interesting. Uh, in the US, it's always been a very popular men's uh, uh, brand, Cartier, and a lot of famous historic icons. GFK, I think, wore a Cartier. His inauguration, if I remember right, Andy Warhol. I think the like, like the story about him is he wore one that never worked, but he, he just thought it looked so beautiful. But obviously, right twice a day. But
0: um, I saw a great picture of Keith Richards wearing a Santos on on, on the other day. I mean, it's, it's again, it's it's a watch that sort of travelled far and wide. Uh, so it's a, they're a really cool brand. I want. I wonder. I wonder, and I'm. I'd love to know, Brian, what you think. But I think with so much activity and interest in the auction scene around watches, particularly contemporary classics, we're not talking about ultra rare, ultra vintage pieces anymore. We're talking about contemporary watches, such is the marketplace that it's driving interest. To the product itself, people are fascinated now by a brand like Cartier and those designs because they are timeless, and people do want to invest in something that they think has 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 legs, shall we say? It has some future as well as a past, and I think that I think that's determining how people spend their money. and the And the wonder is that if if you can't find the Grail piece, as they call it, that you're looking for, you'll find something, if not if not similar, something that's equally as attractive. So I think it does broaden the market. People are. I think with respect, I think almost the Chronomaster Sport from Zenith, if you're unable to get hold of a, a Daytona, I mean, look at the Chronomaster Sport. I mean, it's it, it, it holds the El Primero that powered the Daytona for many years. It's, there's a there's a great deal of, there's a great breadth to the market at the moment. And I think the industry is being very wise about how it responds to that demand by giving people not Me Too's, but alternatives. And I think that's that's the secret.
1: No, absolutely right. Another great example of that, and another brand that's uh, on the up and has got uh, great momentum behind it, is Tag Hour. And uh, looking back at it last year, the association with Porsche, uh, the fact that they both use the name Carrera is a a very nice coincidence. Uh, But those products are are really, really nice and and a completely new statement for the brand.
0: Yeah, you couldn't quite believe that that relationship hadn't been struck up decades earlier, could you? I mean, it was it was it was a marriage meant to be. Um, it's it it from what I can gather, it's it's a it's a deep it's a deep rooted alliance now, and it'll be very interesting to see how these two brands move together into the future. Um, I think obviously this year has been difficult. Been, there's so much disruption around um, events, particularly sporting events. Um, we wait to see what what may develop. Hopefully, early next year at the Monaco Grand Prix, if they if they come together there. But I also loved, and it hasn't been overlooked. But it's as you say, there's such a there's such a smorgasbord now of of, of, of wonderful product that you kind of. Have to recall the fact that the Aqua Racer was redesigned and relaunched this year as well. And that's formidably, an as much as we, in the same way as we talk about Tudor and the, and the value proposition at Tudor, I think the Aqua Racer, for anyone who's looking for a sports dive watch, I mean, the, the value proposition for the Aqua Racer at Tag Heuer is unbeatable, I think. And they've done some, they did a very nice limited edition when they relaunched earlier in the year. And then subsequent to that, they did a, um, a a night dive model that was first available in the early 80s um, with a beautiful loomed uh, uh, batons um it's a very handsome piece. It kind of trends back to that sort of early 80s vibe, which, as we were talking earlier about how watches seem to own their time when they were launched and can find their time again, it seems about right as well. Just as the Pasha brought the 80s back, I think the Aquaracer, Racer, and particularly in that model, is bringing something of that early 80s vibe back as well. So no, that was really impressive, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's our biggest uh, family for tag in the UK, as an aquaracer, and I, I totally agree with everything you just said there about it. And then uh, of the other big brands, and the last big one that we'll talk about, uh, Breitling, again, have an, have an amazing year, really driven uh, very, very well by George Cairn. And um, and I think we were both there, weren't we, that Geneva uh, Watch Days
0: when he introduced the Endurance Pro. Yeah, 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 interesting. Back this in is- the sum- summer of 2020. Yeah. Yeah, the um, it's yeah. I think the hero product in the line is 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 gifted to those that complete the Ironman triathlons, which is one reason why I will never have one. But um, I think, as you describe it, again, we're talking about value proposition a lot. I think Endurance Pro really brings the Breitling uh, watch back into that sort of core market who really want a robust, handsome, well-designed, brilliantly uh, executed watch that they can go out and beat the hell out if they wish. And the way that George Kern has put together what he describes as his squads, which are groups of ambassadors who reflect different, different typologies, different lifestyles. There's a very, there's a strong, strong endurance, fitness, uh, Tough Mudder type vibe to what's going on at Brightling at the moment. And I think the Endurance Pro, again, for the price alone and for the fact that this is a watch that you can and will want to go out and show at a good time, if you know what I mean, you're not going to worry too much about it. Is It is a great thing. But at the same time, I, there were those who were slightly disheartened when the Bentley relationship, which they've enjoyed since the early noughties came to an end. Um, and it has been one of the most successful automotive tie-ups in watchmaking history, without a doubt. But perhaps the product itself, I think George was the first to say the product itself had slightly not kept up with where the contemporary watch market had gone. But what he's done brilliantly is to bring back um, a series of uh, reissues doesn't give him the right credit. They're not not—they're reanimations of classical Breitling timepieces, and um, particularly the top-time chronographs that we've seen this year, um, which artfully... Uh, follow. Um, there's a series. There's a, there's, a, there's one dedicated to the Chevrolet Corvette, another to the Ford Mustang. He is maintaining an automotive heritage with Brightling, but doing it in a, in a in a I would say vastly more uh, contemporary manner. I think, and as we know that the the appetite for neo vintage and retro watches is huge and you know it will remain strong while the originals are rising in value at auction so it seems to me a very clever game that uh, george is playing and and again as you say he's working all sides of the market which george kent did brilliantly at iwc and is doing brilliantly at brightening
1: yeah no no he is and and i think to stretch the brand into a in a really positive way into endurance pro was a was a great move and we, we've actually i don't know whether you've seen it we've just introduced an exclusive and a, and a really gorgeous uh, dark green uh, Endurance Pro, uh, just brought it out at the start of this this month. So uh, delighted with that, but but love the family of Endurance Pro and everything that uh, that George is doing overall. One other thing he's done successfully is you know penetrate the women's uh, market, which uh, you know Breitling I've, I've honestly tried to do for some years. He's finally done it with a, with a different uh, product families, with the Navitimer 35, with the Chronomat. And um, and uh, really good for him and good for us. Uh, another great brand on it, on a great move. Just while you mentioned automotive tie up, one one other one I think is really uh, impressive is the Giro Perigo tie up with uh, Aston Martin. Really, really nice product. Yep, yep. And uh, I think a great, great move for them.
0: Yeah, I think um, Giro Perigo have had an interesting year, haven't they? I think the Laureato is 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 fast becoming its sort of icon. Piece once more. Again, talking to the same talking points that we were discussing around the Royal Oak and the Nautilus, and we should mention the Vacheron Constantin Overseas, which um, they have brought out uh, open worked edition of their um, perpetual calendar ultra thin, which they launched last year. I mean, it's a stunning piece in white gold. I mean, there's there's there there is there is there is great. I mean, the perpetual calendar market is an interesting one as well. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that that these high, high complicated watches achieve this extraordinary ability to mark time over um, decades and, and, and centuries in the case of perpetual calendars without alteration? I mean, this is a phenomenal end of the watchmaking market. And yet there seems to be no, with respect, there seems to be no shortage of choice when it comes to investing into a perpetual calendar. You have the inline... Um, 5236 from Patek, which is obviously going to become an instant collector's items. But you have new pieces by Lange, by IWC, um, and of course by Bulgari. I mean, it's 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 an industry now that seems to be operating, firing on every cylinder available, and discovering new cylinders to fire up. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any um, lack of pace against ev- to, to, against everything else that's been going on. The watch industry, by dint of not being seasonal like the fashion industry, and with respect, being quite locally situated in the sense that supply chains are narrower and shorter in parts of Switzerland and Japan than they might be in a fashion house in another part of the world it means that the the rate that the pace at which the watch industry is presenting new product and the quality of that product is quite i would argue unprecedented
1: i certainly I still regard myself as a novice in this industry I've been in it 8 years and and what we've experienced in the last year, last eighteen months, is certainly unprecedentedly positive in my experience, and and like we've been discussing, and it's coming from so many brands in so many ways. But great, great developments, uh, great uh, commercial, great I think recognition of what trends are out there in the world uh, socially, and all getting represented in the in product. And I mean on that, there's some really good and very welcome developments we can see from an environmental, you know, standpoint. Uh, you know, from Cartier, the, the photovoltaic, uh, yeah, solar powered, yeah, the solar kind of beast, yeah. that's coming out, which, yeah, yeah really cool. What, I, I can't even remember what the uh
0: strap is made of. Apple is in there somewhere, it's <laughs> I, all recycled. Yeah, did you see the Oris uh, Aquis with the uh, the the PET, the plastic yeah. dial? I mean, it was it was recovered, recovered plastic dial. I mean, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting element for my for me a mechanical watch is a, is a sustainable item in its own right simply because it is designed and can and will if looked after run for uh, lifetimes so it is probably one of the most sustainable objects you could ever own but the fact that the the fact that the industry itself is now investing in much more of its time into finding solutions to leather straps and and certain elements of the the the, the mined minerals and, and precious metals that go into these pieces means that, you know, they are again on the front foot for these developments and they are creating great product as, it, as they go up. Panerai, we should mention, has been doing this for several years now, but but I think all brands are, are, are paying much closer attention to this. S- Fundamentally I think because the audience, because of the generation that's coming into mechanical watch ownership and quartz watch ownership, are requiring it of all of their of their uh, all of their products that they are made to a to a degree that they, they don't feel they're hurting the planet. So it's it's it is extraordinary. But I wonder, Brian, from your point of view, is um how how is twenty twenty two looking for you? What what's, what's what do you feel the the market will be doing next year?
1: Well, we're we're very positive about the prospects of twenty twenty two. I mean, I think we came out of another tough year for the world uh, overall in two thousand twenty one, but um, but it actually has been a positive one, as we've been discussing for the uh, for the watch industry overall, and so many great things happening. We don't have time to talk about them all. You know, IWC's great success with the pilot, um, uh, Pierrais, is you know, having a great success too. Um, Uh, Overall, um, new bracelet watches and and so on, the Luminor. So lots of great stuff happening in the industry. And overall, the industry doing well, despite the fact that there's no tourism happening around the world. And we're all focused on on domestic markets. But uh, I think it's been a very, very healthy thing all round. So looking ahead to 2022, uh, I think I see this continuing. um, I I see us continuing having this major challenge of supply, supply, you know, not coming anywhere near to fulfilling demand. Uh, I hope it starts to get corrected to some extent. And uh, there are some good things, some of the brands that we've talked about. So OdeMar, uh, you, you'll know, has increased their potential with the opening of a factory in the local. Uh, and I think in anticipation of the 50th anniversary of, or whether anticipation or not, it's certainly very, very good timing for the, uh, the 50th uh, anniversary of, of the Royal Oak. and uh, I, I know that Tudor, with uh, the demand that's on them, they're looking to increase capacity. Uh, I don't believe Patek are going to increase the unit significantly, but they now have everything centred in the, in Plan Louat, where, where you've been. So I think it's a great deal more efficient from the point of view of, of product variety and development and, and so on, as, as we've been discussing. So I think the whole industry, great investment in infrastructure, great pre- investment in product development. And I think what we are seeing, we've always felt, in our group that um uh that the the category is significantly underdeveloped uh, and we always see everybody wants a watch and, and I know you'll experience too when you tell people your um what you do and you write about But before you know it, you' you're finding somebody saying oh I tell me more about the Vacheron overseas or whatever I've always thought about it or I've always loved the idea of a a Daytona or whatever I' find myself having friends I've never heard of you know the the, the that, that, that swear that they sat next to me at school or whatever and would have put them on the list for a sub But I think I think it all just proves there's a latent demand out there that the more often we can get out there and stimulate it, then the bigger the, the market's going to be. And I think, if anything, the whole COVID circumstances have just accelerated that. Everybody's had to be very innovative from a product development, a product launch standpoint. We've had to be very innovative in how we interact with our clients whether remotely whether making appointments whether just giving them support online whatever it may be and we've done all of that i think the industry's accelerated by a few years because of the circumstances we've been in Uh, so one of the big questions of course is is watching wonders going to happen one thing that you said in the introduction that we've all missed is that
0: sit down with people and pass watches between us and talk about them so you think watching wonders will happen well i'm uh, as you know Brian, I'm not. I'm not a betting man. Um, so I will. <laughs> no, it will be interesting. My get. My guess is that the uh that China won't be coming. There won't be much travel from Asia, depending on the state of the lockdowns. Um, currently, the U.S. appears to be open and willing to travel. As long as we can keep the U.S. flying and they can come to Geneva, I think we we're in business. I think if we lose the North American and South American business, then it will be digital time again. But I, I completely agree with, and prior to that, LVMH uh, Watch Week, which supports their own brands, uh, is due to go ahead at the end of January. So we're looking at a January that should start in good shape if we are able to move. Um, otherwise, we'll ex- enjoy the product over digital. Then we have Watches and Wonders in April. My my review of this year has been that with events such as the Grand Prix in Geneva, um, and Dubai Watch Week, which is a regional hub for watch fans uh, in Dubai, hosted by the Siddiqui family. There's a growing sense that not everything has to be based around a a show and reveal or a trade fair. There's going to be moments, and some will be hopefully award ceremonies, others will be demonstrations, some will be brand activities, but there's a changing face of how the brands are gonna present their work. And we should talk a little bit about AP because Odomar Piguet have recently completed their own museum in Le Brassou. um, It's extraordinary, uh, Bjarke Ingels designed space, which tells not only the story of Odomar Piguet and the two founders and the families that continue to run it, but also the whole history of that area's Swiss watchmaking traditions. And that's the kind of involvement that if there is a sunny upland coming, Brian, I hate to say this, but if there is, it's, there's it's there's been so much not more knowledge that's been gained by people who've spent their downtime and those lonely evenings at home when they can't go to the movies or can't go to a football match learning about watches, that there's a huge pent-up interest now, which I think the industry will draw draw on, I think you will be able to amplify in in your retail spaces globally. And I suppose if you're talking to the human heart, yes, no one can go anywhere. No one can do anything. But there's never been more dive watches on the market. You've never had a greater choice of world timers and GMT watches. Both products talk to the idea that we do want to get out there we want to embrace life and we want to enjoy life. So perhaps watches are also instinctively a means of dreaming. We buy a watch because it allows us to dream about another way of being or another life. So I think without sounding too poetic at this end of the year, we are getting to the point now where we've got all of this knowledge, we've got all of this enthusiasm, it's really pent up demand and we just need the moment to um, open up and, and go and, and really go and get involved once more with watches, which I think to answer your question, I think watches in wonders will go ahead and i think if it's part digital and part in person so be it but i know hopefully brian you and myself will be there if we possibly can and we're allowed to be there
1: i'll look forward to it uh, bill and if i don't see you before then i will look forward to seeing you then we can maybe grab another dinner again and actually i've been uh i've been remiss i'm not sure i thank you for sending me a a great book about the Beatles that i'm really looking forward to a looking forward to, to to reading I know we share a great passion for watches but also a great passion for uh, music particularly
0: of the 60s and 70s era thank you Brian it was an early Christmas puzzle I'm glad you received it and if, if anyone's listening Craig Brown's 1234 his personal story of the uh, of the Beatles is a remarkable book and yes I'm afraid Brian I've told a few people about our Italian restaurants in um, Geneva so we better book early for next year we'll never get back in that was a great great recommendation thank you
1: yeah it was a lovely dinner. I really enjoyed it, Bill, and very much enjoyed spending this time together too. I could listen to you all evening talking about watches. So thank
0: you very much for, uh, for joining me. Very much wish you a good end to the year and, uh, and a happy Christmas. Thank you, Brian. That's very kind of you. And to you and your family and to everybody at watches the Switzerland group, have a great Christmas. And we'll see each other in 2022 without fail. OK,
1: thanks, Bill. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Calibre Podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.